So first of all, we will be in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And coming over to James, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that you battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Good afternoon, family. Um, Let me pray for us as we get stuck into God's word for this afternoon. Father, Thank you for your many gifts of grace. Thank you for Jesus and for his life and his death and his resurrection. Thank you for the way that you have saved us in him. Thank you for the way that you are continuing your work in us, your people, and in this world by your Holy Spirit. So as we come to your word today, we pray that you would form us and shape us, convict us where we need to be convicted, and conform us to Christ. We want to live for your glory, and so we ask for your help to do that today. Pray for myself that you would help me to communicate your word with clarity and with conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've spent any time around kids in particular, or just people in general, you've probably asked this question before. Why? Why did you do that? Um, yes, it's a question I've asked many times myself. And honestly, it's probably a question that you ask yourself from time to time. Why? Why did I do that? Family, I'm conscious that we are on day three of our sixth lockdown. 
three lockdowns in two months. We're all just feeling a little bit weary and tired. And for some of us, this level of disruption that we've lived through in the last two years is more than we've ever had to bear in our lives. And this season is likely bringing out things deep from within you that are manifesting in what you have thought and said and done in recent days. And you probably wish that you didn't have to see or deal with these things. But these things are the planks that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 from our reading today. And God wants us as his people to see them and to feel them and to deal with them by his grace and by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit. And this is what James wants for Christians reading his letter too. He wants us to be people who look like and who live like Jesus. And today you're probably sitting there at home on your couch and a sermon on repentance and faith is probably not something you, you want to hear right now. But family, God knows our situation. He knows our circumstances. And lockdown or not, he is still faithful to his word. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. If we humble ourselves before him, he will lift us up. And I think that we're in a moment where we as God's people need to know and experience his nearness and lifting up now more than ever. Um, today's text is the heart of James's letter. This is the heart of James as the pastor. He wants God's people to be people who are whole, who are perfect, who are consistent and live with integrity to Jesus. Um, and as we've said in the past few weeks, I mean, this isn't something that only Christians aspire to. We respect and we value people of integrity in the world. And James wants us to deal with the unfaithful inconsistencies in our lives with the utmost seriousness so that we might be a people who are single-mindedly and wholeheartedly devoted to God. And in chapter 4, he um, wants us to do this in three ways. He wants us to truly see. He wants us to wholly belong. And he wants us to humble ourselves. Truly see, wholly belong, and humble ourselves. Let's start with truly seeing. Um, a long time ago, in a previous life, um, I signed up for a gym. And a part of the deal uh, was that this gym was giving all of its new members a free session with a personal trainer. And this trainer would assess your health and fitness and then develop a plan to move forward with. Now, in my 33 years of life, um, I've learned that there are different types of pain. Um, there's pain that hurts, uh, pain that helps, and even pain that heals. Um, but in that moment, I really couldn't tell which one of those was happening to me. Started off on the treadmill and then I found myself under some really heavy black and grey implements of torture and then we ended up at the scales and he got out these strange clippers. Really painful stuff. Um, and as painful as it is, to know where 
to go, you've got to first know where you are at. See, we've got to see and to feel the planks in our eyes before we can start to deal with them. And so James cuts to the chase in verse 1 and he asks, what lies behind those negative behaviours that we do? Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel with others? Why do we tear people down? Why do we badmouth them? Why do we condemn and judge other people? We live in an environment, in a world that actually makes it hard for us to know what we really want. Because more often than not, we are being told what we should want. Be this, have that. Be that by having this. And we live in a moment that tells us that nothing should be off limits. That we should never refuse ourselves any sort of comfort or pleasure. After all, you're worth it. And to deny ourselves is to deny our very selves. And so we are being conditioned right now to settle for quicker and cheaper pleasure hits. And the quicker the satisfaction, the better. We're becoming convinced that a thousand little dopamine hits from a like or a repost could actually replace the real deal. But take a look around and take stock of your own life. Is this world producing people who are more content? Or in a world of instant messaging and same-day delivery, are we more unsatisfied than ever? And I wonder if that's the source of our frustration and then the subsequent fighting and quarrelling with other people because we're not getting what we want. In verse 1 of chapter 4 in James, the word desire there and then the word pleasure in um, verse 3, is actually, they're both actually the same word in Greek, hedonate. And it's where we get the word for hedonism, that relentless pursuit of sensual pleasure. And typically we think of sensual pleasures as to do with sexual pleasure or to do with food or drink. But really, James is just uncovering a deceptive but simple truth about what really drives us. We are selfish creatures. We are driven by envy and selfish ambition like people preached for us last week. We are bent in on ourselves. And so, why am I snapping at my family? Why do I get upset at someone when they don't give way to me on the road? Why do I feel cheated when the barista takes more than two minutes to make my coffee? Why do I get sad and disappointed when a friend has clearly seen my messages but not taken the time to reply? Well, James's answer is this. Because I desire, but don't have. Because I covet, but I can't get what I want. In verse 2, James goes on to say, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, our selfishness, even for Christians, can result in us living as functional atheists, not giving a second thought to the fact that God is real and then living out the implications of this. Or we can live as though God only exists to make us happy, to give us what we want, 
And then when he doesn't do this, we just quickly revert to option number one. You see, to begin to move towards greater integrity, James wants us to truly see where we lack integrity. So give yourself a moment right now. Where do you find yourself today? Let the Spirit begin to do His work in you even now. So we've got to truly see. But James also wants to point us to something else we ought to do. We should wholly belong. He goes on to say in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with or loving the world means enmity against God? Again, James is talking to a bunch of Christians here. And he's calling us a bunch of unfaithful adulterers. He's saying that before God, we become like an unfaithful spouse who still occasionally holds hands with their ex. And this echoes the cries of the Old Testament prophets who reminded God's people time and time again of the covenant relationship that God had brought them into and their failure to live wholly belonging to him. Take um, Ezekiel 16 as just an example of this. God says to his people in verse 32 to 34 in that chapter, You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers over your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you receive gifts from your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere. No one runs after you for your favors, but you chase after them, and you give payment, and none is given to you. To the kind of adulterous selfishness that God describes here in Ezekiel, and that James is talking about here in chapter 4, it leaves us with a crushing and demeaning unfulfillment. And whether we use our own personal resources, or we use other people, or we even can use God to serve our own ends, we're often and will ultimately be left empty. And although we are experts at masking our selfishness, it almost always leads to us demeaning, dishonoring, objectifying, and rejecting people and God. But if the God of the Bible is real, and this is what James wants us to consider today, If he is real, if he is who he says he is, if he made all things, if he's wholly consistent and perfect and truly just and loving, then what does this God deserve? Surely he deserves nothing short of our wholehearted love and our single-minded devotion. Think of the first two commandments that God gives on Sinai. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image out of anything. You shall not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And when we live out of bitter envy and selfish ambition, we are our own gods. And this creates enmity, hostility between us and God. Our human jealousy is often disproportionate and unhealthy. But God's jealousy is just and right. Genesis tells us that in the beginning God made all things good. And when it came to us, he breathed the breath of his spirit into all of humanity. We bear his image. 
We were made family and friends. We were made to belong to him. And because God is passionately and utterly faithful to himself and to us, he's not indifferent about whether or not we love him, but he jealously longs for us to wholly belong to him. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be sitting there at home thinking, John, um, yep, even if I wanted to wholeheartedly and faithfully belong to God, well, experience has taught me that it's just a matter of time before I fall short of this. And being cooped up at home, having the lines between work and rest blurred, having to care for kids on top of trying to rest and work, well, all of this can make life with God really hard. You might be in a place today where you might even confess, I don't want to pray. I don't even want to spend time in Scripture. I don't really want to be around my spiritual family. I don't have it in me to draw near to God right now. Thankfully, family, God's grace does not depend on us. He sees and he hears and he knows us and he will not leave us in that place. James goes on to say in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. And this is the only time in James that he uses the word grace. So we should pay attention. See, generally speaking, in the New Testament, grace is something that's understood as a gift, one that is especially unmerited or undeserved. And this is exactly what Jesus is for us. He is an undeserved gift. Grace is at the heart of the Christian story. And as a gift of grace, Jesus, the the Son of God, he took on human flesh, he took up our condition with all of our weariness, with all of our weakness, with all of our godless impulses, and yet he remained perfectly faithful to God. And at the cross, he took upon himself the enmity, the hostility of our sin, that separation with God that's caused by our selfishness. Jesus became the sin-filled enemy of God so that anyone who would trust in him and what he's done can be forgiven and could instead be called God's friend. The planks that are in our eyes became the beam on his back. More than this, for all who would trust in Jesus, God gives the Holy Spirit to reconcile us to himself in Christ and to live within us. Family, Christians, God the Spirit, the perfect, holy, resurrecting Spirit is given to live inside our mortal, broken, disintegrated bodies here and now. He makes us in all of our weakness to wholly belong to God. And this, friends, this is grace. James quotes from Proverbs in verse 6, God opposes the proud because they reject him and live as their own gods. But he gives undeserved favor and grace to the humble because they see him for who he is in Jesus and entrust themselves to him. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2.8, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God. And so we belong to God because of his gift of grace to us in Jesus. But for me to end it here, well, it wouldn't be honouring to James. Because the grace he's talking about here also has a very present here and now aspect to it, right? Grace is not only the means by which we come to belong to God, but it's also the power by which we can live our lives wholly belonging to him. Nowhere else in James do we see so many verbs so densely packed together than in verses 6 to 10. And the word um, humble at the end of verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 10, it makes a, uh, a bit of a, like a humble sandwich where the filling in between uh, fleshes out what this particular humility looks like. So what does the humble Christian life look like in practice? Well, we read on. It looks like submitting ourselves to God and resisting the devil. It looks like us drawing near to God, changing our outward behavior as well as our inner motivations. It looks like us taking sin seriously and grieving it and mourning it and weeping. See, friends, grace doesn't just give us the desire to do this, but also the power to do it, to willingly and gladly humble ourselves before God in this way. You see, grace assures us that if we draw near to God in our weakness, he won't turn us away because Jesus was forsaken in our place. And so even as we draw near with sin-stained hands and unfaithful hearts, Jesus assures us that God will draw near to us. And grace gives us confidence too that when we come to God with dirty hands and broken hearts, he won't crush us further. Christ was crushed for us so that God would lift us up. And the inescapable reality of the Christian life, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, regardless of the level of restriction that's on our lives, it always takes the shape of repentance and faith. Think of Jesus' words as he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Or Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, And so they live by the Spirit, so let's stay in step with the Spirit. And James, today in chapter 4, calls us to humble ourselves by submitting ourselves to God, by resisting the devil and evil, by washing our hands and purifying our hearts, trusting that in His grace, God draws near and lifts us up. See, I think we make a mistake when we think that repentance and faith are only reserved for when we get caught out in catastrophic sin. No, repentance and faith is the shape of the everyday life of someone who belongs to God. It's coming to the Father at the beginning of the day and saying, Father, I know you're good, and so I choose to submit myself to you. It's coming to him ten minutes later and saying, Father, I know that I screwed up. Forgive me. Make me more like Jesus in this situation. 
And see, repentance, family, repentance and faith are actually how we are practically formed into Christ-like maturity. It's how we become people who look like and who live like Jesus. I think sometimes we um, neglect repentance because we haven't trusted in the gospel and that we're afraid that God will reject and crush us. But I think also there are other times where we ignore our need for repentance because, well, we know that we'd have to change. And in those situations, our pleasure or our comfort or even our pride can mean too much. But what are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve through pleasure or comfort or pride? Aren't we just trying to selfishly lift ourselves up into new life? But like trying to lift a heavy weight above your head, um, you can only keep it up for so long before it comes crashing down on you. And that's what unrepentant life looks like. Even for a Christian, trying to hold yourself up by good works will only come crashing down when you inevitably fail. But grace points us to a different way. The grace that James has in mind, family, it's not cheap grace. It's grace that deserves our faithfulness. And so if we believe the gospel and trust in Jesus, if we hold onto the hope that God is making all things new, then repentance and faith is the part that we play in God's work of making us new. And so if you want to experience more of God's resurrection life in you, humble repentance and trust in Jesus is how it happens. Christians, we die to sin and are raised with Christ. Never repenting is a surefire way of ensuring a dead and lifeless relationship with God. And so it's important for us as God's people to have rhythms and practices that help us to see sin in all of its seriousness, to grieve it and to mourn it, to resist the devil and then to submit ourselves to God. And when we do this, we will experience God drawing near and lifting us up with his resurrecting life. That's the promise that James gives us today. It's a promise of the gospel. See, we are formed by our habits. We're creatures of habit, and what you do shapes the way that you want and think and act. So what would it look like for you to be a person who makes repentance a habit? You know, our... um, church family's commitment to living out our faith in community, um, communities of families, of disciples witnessing to Jesus together. It's just another way in which we want to live out this facet of the Christian life. See, as we humble ourselves in confessing and repenting sin towards one another, we have this beautiful opportunity to speak and to embody the gospel in a really real and tangible way. And my heart for our church is that this would be something that becomes increasingly present in our missional communities and in our smaller groups that meet as subsets of those missional communities. May we be people who repent and trust in Jesus and help each other in that work. Could you imagine MC families all over the West who are unafraid to say sorry, to repent, 
and to give gospel forgiveness to one another. We live in a world that is craving true authenticity. And what a witness to Jesus we would be. And both individually and corporately as well, um, you might consider praying the words of Scripture as a way to help give words, especially when you don't know what to pray, especially when you're feeling weak and tired. And so if you look at James 4, um, going on from verse 6, you potentially might like to come to God today and say, thank you, Father, for your grace. And today, as I um, homeschool or go on my walks or have eight Zoom meetings, I submit myself to you. I refuse to be led and influenced by evil. I want to draw near to you. Lord, you promised to draw near to me. I want to know your nearness. Give me the grace to see my sin, grieve it, and to live your way. I want to know your resurrecting life lifting me out today. You could pray those words. You could pray scripture. It, scripture gives us the language to pray back to God. Um, and I know I've mentioned this a few times this year already, but the Ignatian practice of the exam is just another beautiful way of embedding a humble repentance into your daily habits. You know, you examine your thoughts and your words and your deeds for the day. Um, you confess where you have sinned and fallen short and you receive God's forgiveness and enjoy Christ's life in you. Um, but whatever habits we take up, whatever practices we do, repentance and faith in Christ, it ought to change the way we live in the world. Actually, being a people of repentance makes us more sure of the gospel. It makes us increasingly secure in God as we experience his life in us. You know, as, as God's people, as people of scripture and of the gospel story, we know that life does not end in death, but that out of death God brings life through Christ and through the Spirit dwelling in us. And so... Family, as we truly see our unfaithfulness and repent, as we daily crucify the flesh and die to ourselves, as we daily draw near to God by grace and submit ourselves to him, God will draw near to you. He will draw near to us. And he will lift us up into new life in Christ. And Father, let these sweet promises of your nearness and your lifting Comfort and strengthen us today. Help us to live for your glory. Make us people who look and live like Jesus. Do this work in us by your spirit.